We are examining petition number five in the Lord's Prayer, and let's seek uh, our Lord's help. Almighty Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time that we can gather together as your people to study your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit uh, to illumine your word, to open our hearts and minds to receive your word, uh, to learn it, to examine it, to meditate on it, uh, and to apply it to our lives, to live it out in our lives uh, in the coming days. I thank you for what you will do. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in petition number five in the Lord's Prayer. We're going to be uh, looking at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, 9 through 14. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 14. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I have an outline for us. Uh, I apologize in advance. It's a, it's a lengthy outline. It looks busier than I want it to be, but there's a lot of material here in this petition that uh, we would need to uh, take our time examining. Um, and I did not have space to put uh, uh, my references, but I will cite a majority of them uh, over the course of our study here. So if you have any questions on that, uh, feel free to ask me later after the, uh, after the study. So we do have a fill in the blanks. I don't know how else to put this outline together. Uh, so one of the brothers approached me and said, I feel pressured now to fill out those blanks. Don't feel the pressure, just listen. I don't want this uh, outline to be a distraction. More, uh, I'd rather be an aid than a distraction. So, and uh, feel free to raise your hand or come, come and ask me later if, uh, if I missed something or if you missed one of the blanks. So uh, anyway, before we get to the outline, before we examine the meat of, uh, of the doctrine involved in this petition, I'd like for us to take a, a few minutes making some general observations about this petition and how it um, connects uh, with the other petitions that we have already examined. This petition, uh, give us this day our deal, I'm sorry, uh, and forgive us our debts even also as we have forgiven our debtors. It closely follows the petition on our daily bread. In fact, if you notice, it is connected uh, with the previous petition with the conjunction and. Uh, in the previous petition, our daily bread, we saw the Father's heart, his mercy, his compassion, and his providence in providing our daily bread. In this petition, we will see the magnanimity of his heart in granting us forgiveness. Our Father grants us forgiveness by giving us the bread of life his son, Jesus Christ, who is teaching us this prayer. Now, notice this is the only petition that our Lord Jesus revisits among the six petitions. And this is the only petition that our Lord comments on. 
both John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul state that Jesus adds a condition on this petition. Now we have already examined uh, a few doctrines. We've looked at the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of God's kingdom, the doctrine of God's will, the doctrine of God's providence in the previous four petitions. Next week, we will examine the doctrine of sin as it relates to temptation and the doctrine of evil and suffering in this world. Now, all of these are great doctrines, yet none of these doctrines are revisited and commented on by our Lord Jesus, and we must ask ourselves why. This underscores for us the great importance of this petition and the doctrines that are contained therein. Forgiveness is not just some philosophical doctrine or idea that we can examine and feel good about, about ourselves having attained such knowledge, but rather it is something that is an act. It is a great act of love which the Father has extended to us, and he is commanding us to extend that to one another in his covenant community. It speaks directly to his heart. If you and I want to know the heart of our Father in heaven, then we must be intimately acquainted with the nature and act of forgiveness. Before we dive into this petition, let's pause and examine how important this petition is in relation to the other petitions. So uh, forgive me if there's a little bit of repetitiveness or a little bit of repetition here, but uh, I want us to, to see the connection. So forgiveness is the key to all the other petitions. There is no adoption as sons and daughters without forgiveness. There is no citizenship into God's kingdom without forgiveness. There is no ability to obey God's will without forgiveness. There is no relationship with the bread of life without forgiveness. And there can be no aid in our temptations or in deliverance from evil without forgiveness. So forgiveness grants us the key to God's household and entrance into his kingdom. So with that as our um, background, let's begin with uh, our first point. So in our outline, I have, um, I have seven points, really six points. The last one, the seventh one, is, uh, is a question that if we have time, we will, uh, we will examine that. So the first point is the aspects of forgiveness. The second, what are we forgiven from? The third, we will look at uh, the doctrine of repentance. Uh, fourthly, we will look at the condition that the Lord uh, places on this petition. And fifthly, we'll look at sin, the nature of sin, uh, what we are asked uh, to, to, pray, uh, to seek forgiveness from. And uh, lastly is the promise that we are granted, promise of God's forgiveness when we repent. So the aspects of forgiveness. There are two aspects uh, in forgiveness. The first is, I've called it positional forgiveness, and the second is an ongoing forgiveness. Uh, positional forgiveness has to do with our justification, and ongoing forgiveness has to do with our sanctification. And we see that in the um, uh, Jesus washing 
of the disciples' feet and is clearly uh, illustrated for us. Leading up to his passion, our Lord takes the time to wash the disciples' feet. So when it comes to Peter's turn, he says he refuses to have our Lord wash his feet. And Peter says, Lord, not my, uh, Peter says that uh, I will not have you wash my feet, but our Lord tells him, if I do not wash your feet, then you can have no part of me. So in response to this, Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. So you see, Peter had already been positionally forgiven. He had already taken a bath, if you will. He had been justified by faith in his Lord. Peter would go on to confess, referring to Christ, uh, referring to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter had already been bathed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Peter was washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yet Peter was still in need of having his foot washed, his feet washed. And this refers to the ongoing forgiveness uh, that he, he is in need of because he'll continue to sin as every believer does, even as we mature in our faith. And Jesus goes on to say, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not every one of you are clean. So did Judas have his feet washed by our Lord? I believe he did, just as much as Peter did. But yet Judas was never fully washed. He never had that bath, that baptismal regeneration. Uh, being justified by God. So he never, Judas, never experienced God's positional forgiveness. He never became a son of God and never became a citizen of God's kingdom. John MacArthur has um, uh, he's, he's done a three-part uh, uh, sermon series on this petition alone. And this is what he has to say, quote, Judicial forgiveness, that is positional forgiveness, deals with our position or relationship with your Father in heaven. Parental forgiveness, that is ongoing forgiveness, deals with the joy of your fellowship day by day. Judicial forgiveness takes care of the fact of salvation. Parental forgiveness takes care of the joy of it, end quote. So positional forgiveness, our justification by faith in God, is the basis of our ongoing forgiveness. In justifying us, our Father in heaven has fully forgiven us of every past, present, and future sin. Turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Here Paul says of Christ, of God, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for our sake God the Father made Christ Jesus to be sin who knew no sin that in Christ Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So the two aspects of forgiveness are positional, dealing with our justification, 
and ongoing, which we'll examine in detail that is having to do with our sanctification. That uh, brings us to our next point. What are we forgiven from? We're told in the petition, let me read it again. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So here Jesus attaches uh, the condition that Jesus attaches to this petition later on in verses 14 and 14 would shed some light as to what is meant by the word debt. Jesus uses the, uh, the word trespasses. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses. So Jesus is making the word trespass synonymous with the word debt. And trespass, according to Britannica.com, is a wrongful conduct. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, and we'll look at uh, 2, verse 1. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And verse uh, uh, 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So we learn here that Jesus is referring to a moral debt, not a monetary debt. And This is a debt that we owe to our Father in heaven. So Jesus is essentially saying by this petition, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. John MacArthur in his sermon on this petition says, quote, sin is a debt. Among the rabbis and Jews in Matthew's day, the most common word used for sin was the word koba, which is an Aramaic word, and they spoke Aramaic in their common day language. And koba means a debt because to the Jew, the primary responsibility in life was to obey God. And when you disobeyed God, you hold him a debt for your disobedience. So the Jew thought in terms of that, end quote. So we owe a debt to God positionally. God has forgiven us of our debt that we are owed to him. Uh, but the debt still had to be settled. And it was settled on the cross. Christ paid and uh, settled our insurmountable debt to our Father in heaven on the cross. When we sin, we incur a moral debt owed to our Father. We're called to confess and repent of that sin, and when we do so, God graciously forgives us of that sin or, or of those sins. Our Father forgives us daily on the basis of Christ's full payment of those debts, of our debts. And we not only are indebted to God in the covenant community, we owe a debt to our fellow brother and sister in Christ. We sin against each other within our covenant community. And when we do, we ask forgiveness of two parties. We ask forgiveness of God the Father in heaven, and we ask forgiveness of our brother and sister in Christ against whom we have sinned. Now, before we have forgiveness take place in our hearts, uh, uh, something greater has to take place uh, within our hearts. And that is something that's brought about by God himself through the power of his Holy Spirit, and that is repentance. Repentance has to be wrought in us before we can open our mouths and 
and confess our sins to God and confess our sins to each other, asking forgiveness of each other for those sins. Um, that's point number three, repentance. Now, there are two types of uh, repentance. Theological uh, theologians use these two terms. When the first uh, is attrition, and the second is contrition. Uh, attrition may come across as being a repent, uh, as repentance, but it is not true repentance. It is a remorse for one's action out of fear of punishment or out of shame for exposure or out of the fear of, of loss of some favor or some relationship. Esau wept bitterly over the loss of his birthright, yet he sought to kill Jacob. Ahab tore his clothes and put on sackcloth when uh, Elijah condemned him for uh, murdering Ahab, uh, Naboth and stealing his vineyard or taking his vineyard. Now, while Ahab tore his garment, he did not, did not tear his heart. There was no repentance within. There was only that external act of repentance. Judas returned the 30 pieces of silver to this chief priest saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood only to take his own life. Thomas Watson um, had written or preached a series of sermons on repentance and that has been put together in a, a book entitled The Doctrine of Repentance. In, in that book or in that sermon, series of sermons, he says, the first deceit of repentance is legal terror. A man has gone on long in sin. At last, God arrests him, shows him what desperate, uh, desperate hazard he has run, and he is filled with anguish. Do not be deceived. This is not repentance. Ahab and Judas had some trouble of mind. It is one thing to be a terrified sinner and another to be a repenting sinner. End quote. So what is true repentance? We're told that it has to do with contrition. And what is contri contrition? This involves uh, remorseful and uh, that is remorse that is genuine and complete. It leads to ready and open full confession of one's sin. Now, there's no attempt on the one who has been, uh, who is uh, seeking forgiveness or seeking repentance to justify one's sin or to make excuse for one's sin. Such repentance is primarily concerned with the heart of, of the one that has been sinned against and seeks full and immediate restu restitution with God and the brother or sister against whom one has sinned. Now, uh, Thomas Watson in his sermons uh, on, on repentance he speaks of the nature of repentance involving six things. And these six things are the first being the sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred for sin, and turning from sin. Let's look at the first one, uh, the sight of sin. You and I have to see our sin not by our own standards, the way that you and I see it, but rather by, but by how God sees it, his standard as revealed to us in the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Watson argues that a sight of sin is the first important step towards true and godly repentance. 
A man must first recognize and consider what his sin is and how the plague of his heart before he can duly be duly humbled for it. Hence I infer that where there is no sight of sin, there can be no repentance. So we, you and I, when we, we go before the Lord, we ought to lay our hearts bare before him, meditating on his word, and even asking God to show us where it is that we have sinned against him, and, and ask him to work that, uh, his, his supernatural work in our hearts to bring about that repentance in us. The second uh, step towards repentance, godly repentance, is sorrow for sin. Notice true, that true repentance is sorrow for the sin itself, not for the punishment of that sin or the consequences of that sin. Watson calls it, quote, a holy agony, a breaking of the heart, end quote. And he cites how Pharaoh was sorry as each plague had inflict, afflicted the land. But uh, after the, the plague was removed, he, he went on and hardened his heart. And he did so with each of the 10 plagues. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. John Gerstner, in his lecture on, um, on repentance, says, quote, The sorrow of the world, it looks like repentance, but isn't, is a sorrow about the consequences, is a sorrow about the disease, not the sin that brought about the disease. It is a sorrow about the humiliation, not the transgression. It's a sorrow because the person loses his public standing or self-esteem, and this uh, repentance produces death. Esau sought God with tears, but wasn't given true repentance. He was very sorrow about his folly, but he was never sorry about his sinful nature, end quote. That brings us up to, brings us to confession of sin, and this must be voluntary. It must be led uh, by God's work in our hearts, and we ought to uh, confess that sin openly and willingly. It must not come by coercion. It must not be forced. Uh, the repentant sinner, uh, in his confession, confesses all the particulars of the sin, all the details of it, and not in generalities only. I, I've prayed this prayer myself. Uh, Father, forgive me of my sins of omission, sins of commission. But I have to, you have to spell out, what, did it, what is it have I committed against my father or against my brother and sister in Christ? And what it is, what is that sin that I have withheld or have not done, that good deed that I have not done uh, to the glory of my father or for the, for the good of my brother and sister in Christ? Um, and there is a promise. When we make such a confession of sin that is voluntary and that it's heartfelt, God says to us, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that uh, produces a hatred for sin. We must hate sin as God hates it, for it cost him the life of his very dear son. Hatred for sin is also a buffer, creates a buffer for us to, to commit future sins in our lives. Would one day, uh, would one do the very thing that we hate? We don't do that when it comes to physical things that uh, we like to do or don't like to do, whether it be food or uh, clothes that we like to wear. 
such uh, hatred must be formed within us, spiritually speaking, towards sin. And lastly, the last step towards uh, godly repentance is turning from that sin. There are three things that um, Watson talks about when it comes to turning from sin. And it, the first thing is that when you turn from your sin, you have to turn from it with all your heart. It has to be wholehearted. God will have the whole heart turned from sin. The example of Lot's wife. Lot's wife left Sodom, but Sodom had never left her life and never left her heart. The second way in which we turn from sin is that we turn from all of sin, not just part of it, but the whole of it. And the last way in which we turn from sin is that we turn so we do not return to it, like a dog returning to its own vomit or a sow or a pig uh, returning to the mire after having had a bath. Uh, we ought not to do so with that sin in our lives, and we, we need the help of God to be able to do each one of these steps. That brings us to the, the fourth point, which is the condition, the condition that our Lord lays, attaches uh, to this petition, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Well, we see that in verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this is a serious matter. Uh, the best uh, illustration of this in in uh, the gospel accounts is the parable of the unforgiving servant. You have this certain servant that is indebted to his Lord, to his king, an insurmountable amount of debt, 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is the equivalent of 6,000 denarii, and a denarii is a daily wage. So the idea that's being, communicating, uh, being communicated here is this servant owes his Lord as king a, a debt that he'll never be able to repay. So this, uh, the servant pleads with his king to forgive him that debt, and the king graciously does so. He forgives him the entirety of this debt. Uh, later on, this, this servant confronts, or it's not fully told, but we can speculate, he runs into this other servant that owes him a far lesser debt. We're told uh, an amount of 100 denarii. Again, a far lesser uh, compared to 10,000 talents. Yet this, unfor th yet this forgiven servant will not forgive this uh, fellow uh, servant who owes him a far lesser debt. And uh, uh, instead of forgiving him, he puts him in jail and it demands full payment of that debt from him. The king comes to know of this and is furious, is angry that one uh, who has been forgiven so much is unwilling to forgive such small, uh, such small a debt. Uh, let's look at it further in Matthew chapter 19, verses 32 through 35. Let's see what um, the king's response is to the unforgiving spirit of the servant. I'm sorry, I said 19. It's actually Matthew 18, uh, verses 32 through 35. 
Then his master, the king, summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I, gave you all, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do, every, do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the forgiven, you and I, having been forgiven by God, absolved of an infinite debt, will be forgiving. And we have to examine uh, through the word of God and through prayer our hearts and see if we truly understand the gospel, if we have a pattern of unforgiveness in our hearts. Matthew, uh, sorry, Martin Luther, in his sermon on this, and this parable says, Quote, if God is merciful unto me and for the sake of his son Jesus Christ forgives me so great a debt, why should I make so much ado about a penny or two? I will call it square, forgive and forget. Thank God that he has forgiven me and made me a partaker of his grace, end quote. So along these lines, we also have to keep in mind the danger the significant danger of un unforgiveness. It has ruined many relationships, marriages, families, uh, uh, a son-daughter relationship with their mom and dad, work relationships. And the first danger that uh, we have to be aware of when it comes to unforgiveness is unanswered prayer. If you and I do not seek uh, forgiveness of one another, then we have sin in our hearts. And the psalmist says, if you have sin in your heart, then the Lord will not hear you. You and I cannot pray this prayer or seek God through this petition, forgive us our debts if we don't forgive uh, and if we have an ungiven, uh, unforgiving spirit. The second danger or um, consequence even is punishment from God. We're told in this parable, so also my heavenly Father will do to everyone if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And last, it tarnishes our witness. One of the beauties of the gospel uh, that the world cannot understand and uh, 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 would, would love to be part of that is forgiveness, is that uh, uh, we're broken people. We sin against each other. Uh, we sin against God daily, but we seek forgiveness. We come to terms with that sin. We come to, to, to terms with our fallenness, and we confess our sins, and uh, the relationship uh, is restored, and it's renewed by the grace of God. Uh, point number five. So what is it, what are the sins that God is asking us um, or commanding us to seek forgiveness of? Yes. Uh, which one is this? Uh, point number four, is it? Okay. Uh, the first is unanswered prayer. That's A. The second is uh, B is punishment from God. And C is broken relationships and tarnished witness. You're welcome. So that brings us to uh, what is it that we need to seek forgiveness? The nature of sin. 
I'm going to speak, uh, first of all, I'm going to speak in a general category, and then we'll look at certain particular sins. Uh, the general categories of sins, uh, we kind of already uh, touched on that, is that of an unforgiving spirit. Uh, in our fallenness, you and I are very capable of having bitterness take a hold of us, holding grudges, and uh, being vindictive even in our forgiveness, and we need to seek God's help uh, in our repentance to repent of our un unforgiving spirit. Uh, I know I've done that in the past. I'm very capable of doing that again. Um, 15 years of marriage is testament to that. Uh, but there, there it is. I'll, I'll go no further. Uh, and keeping in the context of the Lord's Prayer, uh, there are, uh, uh, we need forgiveness of sins that we have committed against God in the context of the Lord's Prayer. We have not hallowed God's name in the way that we ought to hallow his name. Consider how much time in prayer that you have spent praising and adoring God. Had you made it the first priority in your prayer? Have I given audience to platforms that dishonor God's name, credence to movies, TV shows that dishonor God's name? Uh, if so, we need to repent of that and we need to seek God's forgiveness and turn from that. Uh, it, it would mean not watching those uh, shows again if they dishonor God. Not living the kingdom life. Uh, the characteristics of, the, of a citizen of the kingdom were told being poor in spirit. Have I been humble? And humility, uh, humbleness is one of the key ingredient for repentance that leads to us asking forgiveness. One of the other characteristics of being a citizen of the kingdom is uh, peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers. Have I, be, have I been quarrelsome or argumentative? Uh, have I had my pride get in my way in my relationship with my wife or my children or with one another in the body of Christ? Uh, we need to have our Lord examine our hearts and seek forgiveness of that. Uh, the fourth petition, our daily bread. When God has given us our daily bread, uh, have I been discontent with his provisions in my life? Have I been covetous of my brother and sister and how good he or she has it? Uh, that's another generality that I'm speaking of when it comes to sin that we need forgiveness of. Uh, Table Talk uh, this month has published... Uh, commonly tolerated sins. And um, as I read this, as I've been reading this um, table talk devotional over the course of this month, there were three that uh, stood out to me and uh, uh, basically what I was convicted of. The first is false humility. And that is, has to do with drawing attention to oneself. Uh, in a way, in a subtle way, you know, in a way that you think that you're not drawing, you want the other person to think that you're not drawing attention to yourself, but you are. And uh, that is a false sense of humility. Uh, the author of this uh, devotional, Jeremy Walker, says, true modesty has no need to pretend and no wish to draw attention to, to itself. The second that I was convicted of is judgmentalism. Uh, our propensity, my propensity to, to be quick to judge uh, one another, to judge the other brother or sister within the body of Christ, and looking down on the other person as if I know better or I know more than you do, uh, whatever the circumstances or whatever the uh, uh, situ particular situation may be. 
just basically having a higher opinion of yourself uh, than, than the other person and having a low opinion of that person. Uh, the third, um, this is a big one, marital apathy. You and I, we uh, um, couples, we, husbands and wives, we get so busy in our, in our lives. And those are good things, our jobs, uh, raising of our children, uh, even ministry within the body of Christ. And we get so wrapped up in that that we forget one another, that we are married to each other and that we ought to minister to other, uh, 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 each other within the context of our marriage. Uh, the author of this article, Jason Helopoulos, says this, quote, um, they, that is, uh, husbands and wives, often forget to tend uh, to their own respective souls. No Christian husband serves his wife's soul if he's not tending to his own, and likewise for the wife. If we would see our spouse more readily pursue Christ, we must pursue Christ. The Christian couple forgets that they were united for the Lord, uh, by the Lord, for the Lord. He sovereignly placed them together to help each other as fellow pilgrims through this world to the, to the glory of Christ, end quote. And one of the things that we need to be wary of when it comes to repentance is the pattern of living in unrepentant sin. And that, uh, that leads to church discipline within the body of Christ. Now, God has granted his church the authority to render judgment among his people in the case of unrepentant sin. The unrepentant sin sinner or member must be put out of the church for his own good and for the good of the body. The unrepentant saint, the good that comes out, that can come out out of church discipline, uh, excommunication uh, from the body of Christ, as difficult and, and harsh as it may come across seeming, is for the good of that individual to bring about repentance and uh, reconciliation with his father in heaven and reconciliation with that offended uh, brother or sister in Christ and brings about true restoration. Perhaps that uh, uh, unrepentant member who has been disciplined uh, did not truly know the Lord. Maybe God would use this uh, this avenue or this church discipline to bring that person to saving faith. And the church uh, will also, in church discipline, will understand the seriousness of unrepentance in the sight of God. We're told in, um, in Matthew 18, 17, uh, God commands us, let him, that is that unrepentant brother or sister, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So forgiveness. The last thing I want to see is uh, for us to end with is the promise of forgiveness. And we see here the heart of God. Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So when you and I repent of our sin, confess our sin to God and to one another within the body of Christ and seek his forgiveness and the forgiveness of one another, he promises forgiveness to us. Such is his nature. This is how God defines himself. In um, Exodus chapter 34, just going to read it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty. Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, says, quote, Merciful and gracious. These are the first words out of God's own mouth after proclaiming his name, the Lord, I am. The first words, the only two words Jesus, Jesus will use to describe his own heart are gentle and lowly. And the first two God uses to describe who he is are merciful and gracious. His highest priority and deepest delight and first reaction, his heart, is merciful and gracious, end quote. So this ought to give you and I great confidence and assurance uh, in seeking forgiveness from our Father in heaven and in seeking forgiveness of one another within the body of Christ because that is who God is. And just as God says of himself, I'm merciful and gracious, you and I ought to be merciful for we will obtain mercy. I do have time for this one question. Um, I'm going to read this passage in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, because the question is related to this passage. God says in Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So how do, how do you and I reconcile this statement that God says, I will remember their sin no more with the reality of God's omniscience, his all-knowing. His uh, knowledge is all-comprehensive. That is my question. Any thoughts on that? I'm sorry? Yeah, he, it's, uh, the idea is that being communicated here is like God forgets that sin or forgets that those sins that you confess to him and you repent of. But we're told in, in scripture that God is omniscient. So how do you reconcile what seems to be a contradiction? Uh, Dan Phillips. Thank you. I just chalked that up to, you know, the condescending nature of God in terms of communicating with sinful humans. You know, we're, we're finite, and he speaks to us in language that we understand. We understand forgetting. Certainly God doesn't forget. Uh, you know, he pours out the wrath on, on his son to pay for that. Uh, there's no forgetting in that regard. But for our comfort, it's as though God forgets our sin. He's not going to bring it up. He's, he's not like uh, not like us, where mm. we hold it in our back pocket and whip that out at the appropriate time. Well, you did this, right? Yeah, that, that's not how God is. Thank you, Dan. Um, Dave, Dave McGuire. It's a, uh, it's a legal declaration. It's uh, saying that, you know, uh, this uh, may not be considered against you in the same way that the uh, judge will instruct the jury to ignore certain testimony. Uh, it's, the, it's God declaring these things um, uh, not on us anymore. Bruce, thank you, Dave. Right, right here, Elizabeth, thank you. 
I was just going to say that God can remember and knows omnisciently that our sins are buried in Christ. That in Christ they have been, you know, taken care of. So he can, he can choose to deal with the, his omniscience of sin that way and see that and, and realize, I mean, see, realize he's well aware of that our sins are taken care of. So, and that's one way we can say perhaps that he chooses or he does, he chooses to not remember our sin. Thank you, Bruce. I, I like how you, Bruce, you ended it. He chooses not to remind us of the sins that he has forgiven us. He doesn't call them to his mind. He does not, R.C. Sproul says, he does not hold them against us. And that's the essence of forgiveness. And that is of application to us as well. And we need to imitate uh, that, that characteristic of God in his forgiveness, in our forgiveness of one another within the body of Christ. And when I say to someone, I forgive you, I am making a commitment to that person never to bring it up again. And that is R.C. Sproul. And we, you and I cannot do that in, in a far south. We understand that. That's why even in asking God to forgive us, uh, we're asking God to help us in forgiving our brother and sister in Christ and also in uh, not remembering uh, or bringing to our mind those sins that have been committing have been committed against us. Jan. I, I know for myself, when I'm uh, guilty of certain sins and I've committed them, my heart grieves. And so therefore, I come to the Lord and I, I bargain with him, so to speak, on the grounds of the cross. Lord, you've taken these sins um, upon Jesus, and so I'm standing on, on that before you. I'm guilty, yeah, because I'm a sinner. But I ask that you would cleanse me from these sins that I might not sin anymore. So it's, the cross is a powerful, I don't want to say bargaining tool, but it's a, it's something that we can come and stand before him on grounds that is not only holy ground, but it's grounds that is, that, that is just awesome. And, and the more we know about the cross, the more awesome the cross becomes. Thank you, Dan. Jan. We're out of time. I'm going to go ahead and close us. Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we studied your word on forgiveness. I pray, O oh Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts and minds towards a spirit of forgiveness, ongoing, forgiven, ongoing forgiveness, knowing that we have been fully forgiven in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you again. I pray that you'd bless our time in worship uh, and that we would do that in a way that honors and glorifies your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.